Welcome to the seventh episode of the Invisibility Today podcast. I'm your tiny disabled host, Laura Elliott. This month, I'm happy to introduce you to Chloe Tear, an award-winning blogger and disability activist who's here today to talk about her work with the charity Scope, life as a disabled student, and the ridiculous misconceptions about disability she deals with every day. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Thank you. Um, so, first of all, you've just been nominated for the Unsung Hero category in the Sun Health Awards. Um, did you have any idea that Vicky Patterson was going to nominate you? I had no idea that Vicky Patterson was going to nominate me. It was actually a member of staff at Scope who nominated me. Mm-hmm. And it was only until Vicky Patterson also nominated me that she messaged me and was like, can I call you? I've kind of got something to tell you. So that was a very exciting phone call. I bet. How did you two meet? So the scope member of staff is the woman who runs the role model sessions where we like go and talk and like go into schools. So it was Hannah who very kindly nominated me for that. Oh, that's lovely. Um, how's it been since you were nominated? Have you has has the reception been good? Yeah, it's been really good. Like, I think, you know, everyone's been really supportive and, you know, just congratulating me, which is really nice. And Vicky Patterson is honestly one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Because, um, like, we met for, like, a little photo shoot and I got my hair and makeup done, which was very fancy. But, no, she was, she was so lovely and, like, put me so at ease and stuff with everything. So that was really nice. So... The actual ceremony is soon, and we will find out. Oh, that's so exciting. And you've also just won a Scope Volunteer Award as well. Yes. (laughs) So how did you get involved with Scope originally, and what kind of work do you do with them? Um, So I've been working with Scope for four years now, which I can't believe. Like, it's gone so fast. But I started writing a blog in 2013, and then it was scope that approached me to write an article with them and I've since like stayed on their books and stayed working with them written seven articles for them and then that's how I got into the role model scheme and now I'm currently doing an internship as an online community officer so you know handing all the pies that's so cool. It's amazing they approached you as well. I bet that was really exciting. Yeah. That like it was I didn't really believe it at first. Like I was I was a little blogger who was in year 11 and didn't really know what I was doing. And it was one of my posts that I did that they liked. They wanted to do something similar on. And I think that was kind of where my blog started to take off a bit and where I started to you know, get the experience that I now have. So you you were just talking about the role model scheme. What is the role model scheme? So we go into schools and promote disability, but it's a member of staff from Scope and then a, then a role model volunteer who is someone who has a disability. So we go in to talk about the social model of disability, um attitudes, stereotypes, anything around that really. Um, And then throughout and at the end of the sessions, the students have a chance to ask the role model absolutely anything. 
Um, so it's mainly year eights that we do, but I have done every year. So they're kind of, it's just kind of a really nice open space to talk about disability. And they know that, you know, we, we tell them it's an open space, you know, there's no rules, you don't have to get things correct, you can just ask whatever you want. And I think some people, sometimes people have questions about disability, but never the option or opportunity to ask. So it's just a really good opportunity to speak to kids, really. Yeah, absolutely. And so are there like common questions you get asked a lot in these sessions or are like are there, there themes that come up when people are asking? Every session is different and you never know what you're going to get. But I think that's what I love so much about them. Um, I get asked a lot about my seizures and I get asked a lot about how my disability affects my daily life. And there's always one lad who's like, can you have a boyfriend? <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, I can. Um, but then there are questions that can even throw me. Like, I think I got asked once whether I was scared to go outside by myself. And it was like something you wouldn't expect to be asked by a 13-year-old. And I was kind of like... Um, yeah, yeah, I am. But like, I don't think even I'd realised that before they asked. So no, it's really interesting to see disability in, in the eyes of someone who doesn't know a great deal mm. in terms of what they want to know and what they what they find interesting in terms of getting to know more and, you know, what kind of questions they want to ask you. Yeah, absolutely. And it must be quite quite rewarding to be the one who can answer those questions and kind of open it up a bit to them as well. Yeah, I think like it is really rewarding and it's really nice to maybe like in the middle of the question section where they're all like getting into it and they're all like, you know, coming at you with different questions and maybe getting a bit sassy and you know, it's like it's that kind of bit that I love. And I think it's really nice to be, like you said, to be the person that's able to answer those questions. And hopefully, maybe the next time when they're faced, you know, in a potentially awkward situation, they can remember the sessions that they had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why do you think it's so important to, like, break down stigma around disabilities? I just think it it's just something that unfortunately needs to happen. Like, I think... There are so many stigmas around disability and there is no need to be. I'm not quite sure how long it will be until there aren't any, but I hope it's not much longer. I think, you know, it's kind of like the thing people don't talk about because they don't want to. So hopefully by these sessions, you know, we're going to teach a younger generation that it's okay. And hopefully when they get older, all will be fine. <laughs> That's a bold ambition, but I'm absolutely here for it. <laughs> I'm going for it. <laughs> big plans, big plans. Um, how does how do you, does your disability affect you day to day? I have mild cerebral palsy, which kind of stems into other difficulties, shall we say. So I'm partially sighted and have chronic pain and seizures. So cerebral palsy is like at the core of that, so to speak. So that affects my legs and left arm. So I would 
in a normal situation, I'd just say I'm pretty wobbly. And that's about as medical as I tend to get with it. And it seems to be a pretty good explanation. (laughs) But my eyesight has been deteriorating for the last two or three years. So that's still a new thing for me. So I've been partially sighted a year and a bit, a year and a half maybe. Um, You know, so in in the grand scheme of things, that is still relatively new. We don't know when it'll stop deteriorating, but I hope it's soon. Yes, that would be good. Um, it would. <laughs> or, or even if it waits until I've done my degree before it gets anywhere. Yeah, that's a completely fair thing to hope for, I think. How has um, becoming partially sighted changed the way you interact with the world? Has it at all? Um, I think I'm lucky enough in the respect that because I've had sight and I've lost it, as though, like, even though that makes it harder to deal with, like, emotionally, well, I believe anyway, it means that you are more adapted to visual things. Even, like, the visual cues of conversation, you're more attuned to that because you could see them and you can respond visually because you know what it is, if that makes sense. Whereas I think people who have always lost their sight may struggle with like the non-verbal side of communication because they've not been able to see it, if that, if that does make sense. That's really interesting. But then I, I think in terms of changing my life, in a weird way it's made me love photography, which doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> like, I've always found photography interesting but I've actually started doing it a lot more since my sight has deteriorated, which is very bizarre, (laughs) I know. But I think it's because taking pictures allows me to see things I can't see anymore. Like, for example, I've got, like, a macro lens, so I can see, like, all the really small detail. So when I put photos on my laptop, I can see things that I can't see in everyday life. So... Although it's made a big change in my life and it is a big adaption and, you know, I've started using a long cane and I have far too many magnifiers all over the place. Um, I swear I've got one in every handbag I own. Um, But there are positives, I guess, as well. Yeah, I suppose it's a new perspective, isn't it? Even if it's not one you expected. Yeah. So you're also the disabilities officer at Leeds Trinity as well. What kind of uh, struggles do disabled students face at university and um, how how do you think those barriers can be removed? I think that is a very broad question that could be broken down into so many scenarios, but I think it can be broken down into the fact that we need to be able to access education and we need to be able to enjoy the rest of university life. And if you get those two right, you you tend to be doing pretty well. So in terms of accessing education, even if it's just making lecturers aware of what support you need, or even the flip side of that, what support is available for you to have, is also important. Like, for me, when I did start to lose my sight, I didn't know what what lecturers could do to make it easy. And, you know, they kept asking me, well, what can we do to help you? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've I've never been in this situation. You know, so it's about 
learning what works for you. And if you've not been in that situation before, or even not been in higher education before, it is about knowing where to go to figure out what support works and it being available within the university. So I hope to do that anyway. Yeah, absolutely. What does your role entail? Is that a look into your day-to-day campaigns or is there, are there other things that you do as disabilities officer? I've only just started the role. So I had like training over summer and I got the like official hoodie. So it is very official now. <laughs> uh, a major perk of being on the council. Currently, I'm in the process of writing a motion to go to the university to get more assistive technology, whether that's magnifiers, hearing loops, software, anything that could help you technology-wise, because there currently isn't a great deal, and what we do have can be improved dramatically. It's very, not scary, but it's very... You know, I, I can feel the power. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like, I feel like even if I could do that this year, that is a massive change. Yeah, it's a brilliant opportunity to improve things. It is. Um, like, even like other little things like student ambassadors who like gave me a tour before I came to the university didn't know the access routes. And it's like, because that wasn't part of their training. They were trained on how to do campus tours and tell us everything about the library, but didn't know how to get around the uni if you're in a wheelchair. Wow. So it's, you know, it's, I want that to be changed. I want their training to be improved and I'll happily go and deliver that training for them because I know the access routes of the university. But then I guess if you're not in a wheelchair, you're not going to think of that as part of their training. You're going to think they can show people around uni cool you know um and unless you need the lifts of you around uni you probably don't even know where they are because they, they're quite tucked away and stuff and it's even then you don't know where the lifts lead to so I, I just kind of hope to be able to share my experience and things I've done out of uni and just kind of all bring it back home yeah, absolutely. And it does, like, that's not a, a problem exclusive to universities. Like, it seems that access is often a last thought, if it's thought of at all in public. I agree. <laughs> and uh, you actually mentioned teaching the social model during your role model sessions yeah. as well. So for people who don't know, do you want to say what the social model of disability yeah. is? So the social model of disability is without placing too much blame on other people, it is the society around us that is disabling rather than a condition or disability that we have. So, for example, if you use a wheelchair, it's the fact that they don't have a lift, which is disabling rather than the fact that you're using a wheelchair. Because with the right adaptions and adjustments, you can live life completely normally. So going along that thread, if you could change one thing, let's say about politics or about society that would benefit disabled people at the moment, what would it be? If you have a question, ask. But if it's not a question you wouldn't want to be asked yourself, don't ask it. And I think I say that because we want people to ask us questions, but then 
because we, you know, that's the only way people are going to understand the situation we're in. If they have no reference point whatsoever, they're not going to understand. And I think that's where stereotyping stems from and prejudice. And But if you're going to be asked inappropriate personal questions that they wouldn't want to be asked themselves, then that's not, you know, that's not going to prove anything. That's not actually going to improve their education of disability. That's them just being nosy and actually probably acting on stereotypes that exist. Absolutely. It's different for a 13-year-old boy to ask, can you have a boyfriend, than it is for an adult to question inappropriate things. Yeah, or even, like, you know, if you're going about your you know, your daily life and getting on and off a train, you don't need someone to question your intentions of going shopping or being like, well, how are you doing that? You know, even if someone was to say, oh, how does your eyesight affect you? That's, a, in my opinion, a totally valid question for someone to ask you. But then, in the same token, we don't want to be asked that every day. You know, we... we we do want to go about our normal lives and do normal things because, believe it or not, we're capable of doing those normal things. But, you know, we're all about... Well, a lot of us are all about raising awareness. But then, like, the most recent blog post I did said, well, sometimes disability advocates need a break. And I think that's not necessarily something I'm going through at the moment. I think it's something I've been through and gone on the other side. Whether it's you you hear someone say something and you choose not to question it because it's probably not worth the hassle, but then you feel guilty for not questioning it because it's almost your role to, to change society. And as amazing as that is, you don't want to do it seven days a week. You can't be bothered having an argument with a middle-aged man on a train because he thinks disability is wrong. You know, it's... <laughs> it's not always worth it no completely and it is strange it's like people i think people forget that like they might have only asked one question but they might be the seventh person that week or day or whatever to ask you the same question and we have google now exactly (laughs) we we have blogs come on uh, i might just start handing out business cards when they ask me questions be like it's probably on here there you go i think that's totally valid it's driving blog traffic and it's making a difference there we go <laughs> it's killing two birds with one stone i'm here for it, it <laughs> so uh, you were talking about how um so many people who are disabled are also driving change and like mm. acting as role models which uh, activists or role models have really helped you? And uh, probably a separate question, but who do you most admire in the disability community? Wow. <laughs> There's so many of us. I think it helps having friends that are in that community, um, whether that's friends you've met along the way or friends you've had. So like Ellie Simpson from CP Teens. You know, she's my best friend, but although we met through doing this kind of thing, it was more at the beginning of both of our journeys of kind of driving that change. So, you know, we've kind of gone along together and been able to have cocktails along the way (laughs) because that's what you need to get through the questions. 
that the public asks. But then, you know, there's people like Shauna Louise, you know, who's a disability blogger who I've met only relatively recently, really. You know, we, we've met in person a few times and she's one of the loveliest people I've ever met. Yet, having those allies, if it were, online helps. And I think that helps when the maybe not so nice side of campaigning comes out when you get a public backlash or whatever, you know, against things you believe in. To name one thing, it's when the straws got banned, you know, and the disabled community were in uproar, rightly so, and the general public were totally against us all. It's then that you need your allies, you know, to keep going and to know that you're not the only one who is fighting for that? Mm, absolutely. I mean, the straw ban's still ongoing as well, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I've been I've been reading this for a long time, but for anyone who who does in their heart of hearts knee jerk and say, "Oh, we should all get rid of straws," um, mm-hmm. what what arguments are there from the disability community who have been campaigning not to ban straws? So that is a can of worms, if ever there was one. We have tried every alternative there is on the planet. If you can make a suitable alternative, tell us, because we want that suitable alternative. But we have straws which either don't work with hot drink or harm us. You know, like, you might use a straw because you have involuntary movement, and then do you really want to put something metal in your mouth? Metal straws can hurt. I've done it many times, you know, in my attempt to save the planet, and it's just not worked, and I've resorted back to plastic straws. Or we have paper straws that disintegrate before you've even reached the bottom of your drink. Able-bodied people might argue, well, I can get to the bottom of my drink without it disintegrating. And it's, well, it depends how you use a straw. If you've got limited like muscle function in your mouth, you're probably going to squash the straw more than somebody else would, and therefore it's going to disintegrate quicker. You know, then there's silicon straws, which are really hard to clean, and if you've got a disability, you probably are more likely to have a lower immune system. So that's just going to add to germs, or the fact that silicon straws don't bend enough for, again, someone with a reduced, like, muscle ability in their mouth to use them. So if you go through all the options, the only one straw that ticks all the boxes is unfortunately a plastic straw. (laughs) And I say unfortunately because, believe it or not, I do want to save the planet. And I think the general public forget that we too want to save the turtles and that we're we're not inconsiderate people who just want all the straws (laughs) no i completely agree and i think it's interesting because plastic straws were literally invented for disabled people that's why they were invented and then fast food chains took them up and now Mm. they're destroying things but that's only because people who don't need them use them not because disabled people are using them it's... But then if we if we do use them, we're blamed for killing the planet. And it's like, no, we, we, we do care about the planet. We also do not want to die of dehydration ourselves. And I think that's fully valid, but 
apparently people on the internet often don't. No, they, they don't think that at all. <laughs> oh dear, and this, like you say, is why you need allies. Yes, it really is. Um, so what's the biggest misconception about, or some of the biggest misconceptions about disability you want to clear up? So many, unfortunately. One would be cerebral palsy, you know, nine times out of ten doesn't affect your intelligence. I can wobble towards you, but I can still do a degree, and people often don't believe that. They're like, how are you here? Like, you know... And I have two PAs who help me through my degree, but they help with the more practical side of things. And when it gets to my assignments, trust me, they're like, you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) That this is not not my area. So they're there for that rather than any intelligence, any intelligence capabilities or whatever. Another one would be, you're going to set me off now, I'm going to be here all night. (laughs) Um, if you use a long cane, you're not blind. You could be registered blind, but that still doesn't mean you don't have any sight at all. Even if it's that you've got light perception or you can see colours, or even like me who has maybe a little bit more sight, a cane is still very valid and very needed, but that doesn't mean we're blind. And I found when using a cane in public... I might be using my cane, I will kind, you know, people will kindly clear out of my way, almost like I'm contagious, but it's, it's quite amusing, you know, and I will thank them because they very kindly moved out of my way, and then my PA will tell me that they've just looked absolutely horrified because the blind person has just seen them. <laughs> and although that is my favourite thing in the world... It's a massive misconception that I can't see them or go and pay for something in a shop. And if I have my white cane, they will give my items to the person I'm with because they can't possibly pass me them because I won't see them. But you've just seen me put my PIN number in, but I can't see the bag you're about to hand me. (laughs) I don't understand. This is like when people see people who are using wheelchairs stand up and they're like, what? Miracle! (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Have you been following the, um, oh, I've forgotten who started it. You might know her name. The Ask Don't Grab campaign on Twitter. Amy. Amy, thank you. Um, Have you been following that? I found that really interesting to read. Yeah, I'm actually quite close with Amy. You know, and I think we we kind of started our sight loss journeys at the same time. And, you know, we kind of started using a cane around the same time. And, you know, again, massive ally <laughs> out there. And I, I, I've loved that campaign that she's been doing. And it it's so true. But then it kind of makes me think, like, I got off the train at the weekend. Well, no, I didn't quite get off it. But I went to go get off it. And the door slammed shut with my PA on the platform, me on the train, the woman behind me grabbed me and pulled me back. And I was very thankful she did so, because otherwise I would have got slammed in a train door. Oh, wow. So then it's like, you can grab me then. (laughs) If I'm in danger, you can grab me. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of am going to throw a spanner in the works in her campaign. But then it's kind of like I've got on a bus before with somebody else who knows me very well. 
and people have got up off their seats, grabbed me and put me in the seat. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, thanks. I'm now sat down. That's good. But I could have got here by myself. Yeah. Oh, it's funny, isn't it? Because, like, you know people, people who do that are just trying to be nice, but they just yeah, don't seem exactly. to think. Yeah, this is why campaigns like Amy's are really good. It's why they need to happen, and, you know, I'm so glad it's getting the attention it deserves because it's it does happen, and I think, I think because we're both new to it, we're both equally as shocked in terms of how much it does happen. Like when I started using a wheelchair on a part-time basis, I kind of realised the whole standing up is a miracle. Whereas now I use a cane and I'm realising that we're not all blind. You know, it's it's different disabilities are faced with different stereotypes and misconceptions Mm. that, although are funny because they're ridiculously untrue, they can get extremely annoying and, you know, like Amy has said multiple times, it can be dangerous if someone drags you across the road. It, you know, you might not be able to see the road, but there are ways of, like, the turning cones or, like, the like the tactile pavings. You know, there's all of those things that are there to aid us. And if we're out independently, it's because we can manage independently. So leave us to it unless we ask. Yeah, absolutely. As you would a person who didn't have a disability. Exactly. And the amount of, like, I don't go out by myself very often because I have PAs. But if I go out by myself, the amount of people who ask if I'm lost. Because you couldn't possibly be going anywhere. Well, yeah, exactly. I can't possibly be going anywhere independently because... I have cerebral palsy, so I have no intelligence. And I'm obviously blind, so I can't see where I'm going. <laughs> oh, wow. What an odd thing to ask someone. Are you lost? Honestly, it happens all the time. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. And I'm like, no, are, are you? <laughs> like, are we clarifying whether we're lost together or what? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. Uh, adding a new rule book, like, don't ask disabled people if they're lost. We're okay. <laughs> we promise. <laughs> oh, dear. So this sounds like I'm making a joke because my next question is, where do you see yourself going from here? Yeah, that's a joke. No, I'll let you have that one. <laughs> Thanks. Do you mean, like, career-wise? Or yeah, like, like advocacy-wise and uh, with your work with as the disabilities officer and things like that. I don't want it to end, to be honest. Like, you know, I've been doing it for five years and I think I've managed to achieve quite a lot in those five years. So another five years would be nice, you know. (laughs) I think I never know where it's going and I don't like to predict it in that aspect because it's already been more than I envisaged. So I think everything that happens currently surprises me and exceeds my expectations. So continue doing that. I really enjoy what I'm doing. I think people sometimes don't think about the work that is involved in it. And, you know, like writing a blog takes a lot of work. And, you know, especially if you're the one running the social media as well and 
you know, all the other aspects. But it's what I love doing. And I'm going to finish university. And it's like, oh, I need to get a job. And it's like, but I've been doing all these amazing things and never thought for a second of earning money from it because I enjoy it so much. And I think that just, you know, if I can continue life getting by and then continuing to do this, I will. Because I think I think that just shows how important it is. And it's not for everyone. Not everyone has to be a blogger or stand up for change or advocacy, you know. They can be teachers and lawyers and doctors and whatever else they want to be. But I quite enjoy the role I have. You can follow Chloe on Twitter at ChloeLTier and read her blog at cpstudentblog.blogspot.com. Now we come to our final section of the show, and this month we're shining some visibility on one or two of the disabled and chronically ill creators you might be interested in lending your support to. In literary and writing visibility, I was lucky enough to review Penny Jolson's new YA thriller, Girl in the Window, this month. Featuring a main character with ME and a wonderfully diverse cast, this is a disability thriller you didn't know YA was missing. You can order Girl in the Window online or from your local bookshop. Also in new book releases, Unbroken, 13 stories starring disabled teens, is now out in the world. The anthology is written by disabled creators and explores disability in a variety of fictional tales. It looks like a wonderful collection and you can get it on IndieBound, Amazon or Barnes & Noble now. That's all for this month and I hope you're super proud I got this podcast out on time for once. For now, we've reached the end of the 7th Invisibility podcast and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If there's a disability topic, activist, creator or news story you'd like to see featured here next month, you can contact me on Twitter at at visibilitytoday or email visibilitytoday at gmail.com. For now, thanks for listening and I'll see you at the end of October for another look at what's invisibility then.